Welcome, everybody, to the Fly Racing Racer X podcast. Before we get into this, Race Tech. Racetech.com, man. They've been doing suspension and motors for some of the top privateer teams in the, in the pits. The Team Solitaire guys uh, absolutely doing a great job with Racetech motors and suspension. Racetech.com. Pulp 21 is a code to save with those guys. The SGB guys are a Racetech outlet out there in Maryland, so they use a lot of Racetech techs and tips and tricks to uh, make the bikes work well. They've, uh, give, uh, they've held out zombie blows for, for a while as well. So Pulp 21 is a code to save with uh, Racetech. Get your motors dialed in. Get your suspension work done. Tell them you uh, listen to Pulp, and you can save money. It's that simple. Racetech.com. Check out their website. Super informative. All right. Racetech.com. On to the podcast. A Pulp MX Network production. Welcome to the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show, presented by Maxxis Tires, Renthal, Motosport.com, and Kuba Links on RacerXOnline.com. With your continued support of our sponsors, we have surpassed 1,700 podcasts delivered with over 17 million downloads. Click that Amazon banner on Pulp MX to help us out. Donate via Patreon if it suits you. And as always, enrich your moto lifestyle by working with the sponsors who support us. Moto Podcast, featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis. Justin Brayton, Zach Osborne, just a few of the guys that choose fly racing for all of their needs for uh, head-to-toe. They've got you covered. they got great boots. they got great helmets. they got a Formula CP helmet they introduced this year with a uh, slightly different shell and a little bit different price, but the same great safety features as the Formula helmet. So flyracing.com, go to your dealer, go to motorsport.com and see what they've got. Gear lines for all types and sizes and uh, tastes, let's say, of people out there. Flyracing.com for more information on that. 2022 line is some of their best stuff ever. So please check it out. Thank you to the folks at Renthal, of course. More titles than all the other competing brands combined. Renthal.com for more information on their bars, their grips, their chains, their sprockets. Renthal.com. Fatbar36 introduced uh, two years ago now. And uh, Chase Sexton is running it right now, I believe. Cooper Webb has won the Supercross Championships with Renthal. Kenny Roxon's won a ton of wins with Renthal. Adam Seen Cirillo, a Renthal guy. I don't need to go on and on. Rick Johnson, uh, from Rick Johnson to Eli Tomac to Adam Seen Cirillo. Tons of titles with the folks at Renthal. Renthal.com for more information. And thank you to Max's Tires. A-Ray, Cade Clayson, all running uh, Max's Tires. Uh, oh, and also Jace Kessler on the SGB Honda Max's team. Uh, Max's.com for more information. Light truck tires, SUV tires. Mountain bike tires, dirt bike tires. Jeremy McGrath runs them. Maxxis.com for more information. Thank you to those guys. If you haven't thought about Maxxis for a tire in a while, it's time to uh, rethink that. All right? So please check it out. Thank you to those guys. Also, thanks to Cobalinks and Motorsport.com. We'll talk about more of them later. But did this podcast with Doug Dubach a while ago about what-ifs in the motocross world and, and what would have happened and everything else. And it, well, I thought it was fairly entertaining. And so I want to do it again, and this time with Brock Glover. Brock's a uh, awesome rider, of course, and the six-time 
national champion. I spoke. To, I speak to Brock quite a bit on the weekends at the nationals. He's around, and uh, he's a he's a very smart guy. He's well spoken. He's also been, you know, uh, involved in the industry for a long time, as well as of course that legendary career. So, I thought, who better to answer some what if questions than the Golden Boy, Brock Glover? So. Please enjoy the Fly Racing Racer X podcast with Brock Glover and subscribe to Racer X magazine, please. There's stuff in there that you'll never read online, and it's super cheap. Get the digital dish as well, the U.S. Open stories in there. I would appreciate it so I can keep producing these podcasts, all right? It's that simple, people. All right, here's Brock Glover. And now, as promised, on the Fly Racing Racer X podcast, a gentleman that uh, I absolutely love to uh, bench race with. He is a six-time national motocross champion, working for Dunlop Tires for a number of years. It's Brock Lover. What's up, Brock? How are you, man? Oh, I'm doing good. How about you, Steve? I'm good. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. I, I did this with Dubok a few years ago, and people really liked it. And I wanted to do another one, and I'm like, well, I need a guy that's like good at bench racing, but you know, has been around the sport and 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 also can maybe put aside a little bit of his own personal feelings and give the the listeners uh, some honest thoughts. And so you came to mind, man. Thank you for doing this. Well, I appreciate me my, that I came to mind. Actually, that's pretty nice of you. Uh, I've got some questions about your own career. Uh, I've got some questions about different points of uh, the sport of motocross and supercross, and and uh, and just want to get some ultimate like what if questions. Just bench racing, what if. And you give me your opinion on what you think. So um, uh, I guess we'll start with you first, though. Uh, amazing career uh, at Yamaha and all those national championships and everything else. But you had a Honda offer in 1980, at the end of 1984, right? I actually had a couple different offers from, from Honda, to be exact. Okay. So, um, um, yeah. What if you had taken it, Brock? What if you, obviously, Yamaha, uh, you were with them a long time, and you went from a Honda to a Yamaha uh, bike uh, in the mid-'70s there, and you started, you you wrapped up championships and everything else, but by the time you got one of those Honda offers, uh, it was clear that the factory Honda guys were where they at. I, I know this is probably painful for you, but what if you had taken it? What would, uh, what would, what would your career have looked like? Well, I mean, to just to clarify a few of the things. Yeah. I, the first, the first offer that I had was way back when I believe Gunnar Lindstrom was the team manager, okay. and, and it, it was pre uh, the period when Honda had all those crazy motorcycles. It was at the end of the '81 season, I think it was. So I really didn't have the crystal ball to mm -hmm. know what they they to know the very next year they came out with those incredibly exotic motorcycles right. that had the gas tanks down low and the fuel pumps, you know, and, and just to get the gas out of the gas tank because it was lower than the carburetor at one point. And there was just, you know, I, I didn't have that crystal mm -hmm. ball. However, you know, I knew Honda was being very aggressive and um, Yamaha seemed to be kind of going into a, a mode of, I don't want to call it putting their tails between their legs, but the economy was a little different back then. Mm -hmm. Money being money being spent on racing was being trimmed at Yamaha. Um, I think globally, it seemed to be being trimmed by a lot of the companies, but it also uh, uh, I didn't realize what Honda was had up their sleeve. And had I done that, it probably would have made that decision that much harder to stay with uh, stay with Yamaha because they obviously came out with some incredibly uh, uh, exotic motorcycles that were not only exotic but just flat out good because I did uh, I did get a chance to ride to ride them later and realized uh, uh, that I possibly <laughs> <laughs> yeah I didn't maybe do what was best for my career um, I did but on the flip side you know I always had that 
I, I don't know. I grew up playing baseball. Mm-hmm. I grew up in San Diego. Tony Gwynn, you know, stuck kind of was Mr. San Diego and he stayed, you know, like through his yeah. career, he stayed with San Diego. And to me, the thought of staying with one team, uh, you know, I wanted to kind of like, yeah, I, I was extremely loyal. And if you look at my career and history, I mean, look how long I was with JT Racing. Yeah. I was with JT, I was with JT Racing my entire career basically. And, and it was even before I signed a factory contract, I rode with JT gear for a couple of years as I came up, you know, my first thing, of course, like everybody's wear their socks. And, right. and uh, I stayed with JT and met John and Rita Gregory and, you know, I was a lifer JT guy. So I was, I had kind of a history of being pretty loyal to the brands that supported me. I supported them back equally. Mm-hmm. So staying with Yamaha, you know, for me was, uh, it was, it, it sounded, uh, it sounded really good uh, at, at the time. Right. Um, yeah. I guess Roger goes there in 80, right? Um, in, in 80. And, and he's kind of, helps these guys and Dave Arnold comes around David Arnold's there and, and this is when they start getting aggressive Honda does yeah right around there yeah it was um you know when I growing up like every other person that <laughs> grew up in the mid-70s I mean you grew up wanting to be Marty Smith or be right. like Marty Smith and I was so fortunate to have Marty uh, not only become like a mentor for me but it really just became a close friend and uh yeah did i have a dream of being marty smith's teammate heck yeah you know mm-hmm. tommy croft was yeah. another guy that tommy croft was another guy that i practiced with locally in san diego he was on team honda for a while i mean it would have been yeah it would have been awesome it would have been kind of like the cajon zone prior to the cajon zone there and, <laughs> sure. and uh, so i dreamed you know i rode a honda elsinore just like everyone else and then you know my 76 season as a rookie in the ama national one type nationals and and so yeah to step yeah. over to honda i thought yeah this would be awesome to go over to Honda. Uh, unfortunately for, for me, Honda didn't have the same mutual feelings. And, and despite literally, I, you know, I won national motos and, and finished mm-hmm. sec- seconds overalls and, and, uh, and didn't even ride all the series and still finished fifth in the championship ahead of the Honda guys uh, that they had out on the track. And I thought, boy, you know, certainly they're going to at least talk to me yeah. about possibly riding a factory bike. And I never even got a whisper out of there or even a, a little whisper in the ear. So Yamaha well, was aggressive pursuing me. And, what's and crazy was, you know, too is Honda had a huge team back then. You know, they had Gary Chaplin, they had Wise, they, they had a massive team and they couldn't find a guy if it was winning motos. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I know. On a, Honda, on a Honda too. But uh, yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it, was, it was interesting. And then, you know, so I signed with Yamaha. Yeah. Very first year I signed with Yamaha in up winning the championship and then Kawasaki pursued me which was uh you know they'd kind of uh, they had Jimmy Weinert at the time and he was he was uh, you know started befriending me and I, I figured there was some good reason why he wanted to be my friend and and you know and Jimmy was a fun guy anyhow and I really enjoyed him but he was he's like man you need to you need to come over to Kawasaki and he showed me all mm-hmm. the positive things about Kawasaki and how their media department was so good and and so it was a kind of an interesting time. I did ride their bikes, but I was comfortable yep. with the Yamahas, and I stayed with Yamaha uh, through, a, through again, up until we talked about up about 80, yeah. 81. But, you know, if you remember, too, Yamaha was starting to have a max, mass exodus from our team too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Bob, Bob, Bob was very vocal, um, you know, about the, about Hannah, that 80, yeah. 80, Bob, 80, Bob. 80, yeah, 81, yep. 82. Oh, we yeah. didn't, uh, Tried to come up with a water cool bike and, and uh, 81 and the thing was uh, about 40 pounds was too heavy and top heavy and some things. And we ended up taking all the water cooling off the motorcycle and we went back to air cooled bikes when everybody else was advancing. Yeah. Move 
Moving radiators lower, uh, going to water cooling and disc brakes, and Yamaha seemed to be a little bit behind the time with the drum brakes and going back to air cooling. <laughs> it was just an it was just an awkward time. I yeah. mean, um, and, and so next thing you know, uh, Yamaha left or uh, Bob left Yamaha, went to Honda, and, and kind of revamped his career. Yep. Um, and, and you saw that, you know, you saw in '83 he was the fastest guy around. He just got injured, right? I mean. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. I would say he was, he was. Yeah, it was. I, I don't know that every race he was. He yeah. certainly had moments in like that eighty two, eighty three, where he was, he was, uh, he was quick. Um, eighty one um, during the era when Bob was still as the last year on Yamaha, uh, he had that. Uh, we went into the Trans USA series, which was a fall series where we all rode the same bike, same track, same size two fifties on the outdoors, and we hit the the main. Uh, the big tracks we hit the red buds the unadillas the uh hangtown yeah. track and uh i think rio bravo and back then mid ohio was still a pretty big big uh world-class track and so we did a five race series there and i won every race except the one where i went dnf one and i still won the championship um to me that championship to me kind of in my mind I never really liked Supercross. It was no secret, yep. <laughs> but outdoors, I, I love motocross. And to me, winning every race like that in 81 and dominating that series against all the names that were there, sure. from the Howertons to the Barnetts to the, uh, again, to the Hannas and, and so on, uh, to win that race how I did in that series how I did was kind of my, you know, to me, I felt like I was the fastest guy in outdoor motocross. I mean, you know, does that matter? I don't know. But yeah, the yeah. championship to me. But to me, the 81 Trans AMA Championship was probably my uh, championship that I cherish as much as any of them, to that's, be honest. Yeah. Um, so that's – yeah, you're seeing Hannah leave. You see Lachine leave and all this. Your next yep. time is is 84 or 85? They, they approach yeah, you a little bit the again? First, I think the first time it was a two-year contract, and then the next time I think I was doing a three-year contract. And the three-year contract was my – final year with Yamaha so 85 86 yeah. so it was right yeah. at the end of 84 yeah. 84 was my second opportunity so I had a chance at the end of 81 for a two-year deal mm -hmm. and then I went to a three then my Yamaha deal was a two-year deal and then I went to a three-year deal uh for 85 through 88 and uh oh boy with Yamaha and, and it was kind of a yeah you look back at it and you say yeah so so here we are in 81, Bob leaves, um, you know, saying I can't win on these bikes uh -huh. and goes over to Honda and kind of revamps his career. And it's uh, one point, I think he was leading the Supercross championship when he got injured. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Lachine State came out at turn pro in 83. And then uh, he came over. So we had the El Cajon zone by self and Rick Johnson and, and, and Ronnie, all three factory Yamahas. Mm -hmm. The last year, Yam the last year Yamaha had factory equipment. Yep. In '83, and then Ronnie had a multi-year contract, and um, but there was a fine print in there that he had that he got factory equipment, and then Yamaha came to us, and and Rick Rick, Rick uh, Johnson re reminded me a little bit more of this. I'd almost forgotten about mm -hmm. it, but I, when he reminded me, it was like, oh yeah, you're right. They did do that, didn't they? Uh, they they called us in for a meeting, mm -hmm. and they basically told us that uh, we're either going to stop racing or we're going to buy you out of your contracts and just basically pay you off and, and, and quit racing, or we're going to go switch overs to production-only motorcycles. And so as far-fetched as that sounded at the time, I remember Yamaha had that little era in the late 70s where uh, the, the top guys would bounce back and forth between <laughs> OWs and yeah. YZs because our OWs tended to 
maybe not be as good as our production bikes at times. So there was a little history of Yamaha riding production bikes more than the other manufacturers. And as crazy as it sounded, um, there was a time there where I think Kawasaki maybe stopped racing pro motocross for a year or two oh, in wow. the middle of okay. the 70s where they didn't field the full factory team. So it wasn't completely out of left field that a factory would say something like that. But mm-hmm. I remember I remember Rick looking at me like, what the heck are we supposed to do here? Right. And, and like, should we take the money and then go sign with another team? It's kind of like we get two paychecks. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, you know, and, and, and it sounds great. But then all of a sudden you're realizing that you got three pretty high level guys like myself and and Rick Johnson and Ron Lachine all looking for factory rides. And um, Ronnie was the first, his dad was clever enough to realize that his contract was worded that he got factory yeah. equipment and basically said, uh, right here, this clause right here, um, we're opting it, you know, we're yeah. exercising this clause and we're out of here. And so he went to Honda as, as you know, and, right. and uh, at the credit uh, for the 84 season. So we lost two of our big players in the, in a two year window there. And, and Rick Johnson left at the, uh, at the end of 85. So do you, and then Jeff, oh, yeah, do you remember ahead. your, do you remember your Honda deal at the end of 84? Do you remember it? Was it more money? Like ultimately why you said the loyalty in the San Diego and Tony Gwynn, I get all that. Do you remember yeah. being like I'm just going to be loyal, or do you remember the money not being as good? You know? Their first, yeah, their first offer was um, what I what I was shooting for was a little higher, and it was okay. the same for three years straight. Yep. And the Honda contract started lower than the Yamaha contract. Uh, the next year, it jumped up uh, a fair amount of money. I think it was about twenty five or fifty or something like that. But then the final year was about a wash, even with the Yamaha contract. Mm-hmm. Okay, their, their their bonuses were a little better, but Yamaha said they would match them. So I basically gave Yamaha this is what I want, and it was um, you know if I were never win a race and it was just a fixed amount for the three year period. Uh-huh. Um, I think it was probably a grand total of maybe a hundred thousand for the three years, which okay. really wasn't it yeah. wasn't you know yeah it wouldn't make or break it yeah yeah it's a ten percent thing maybe at the most and um, with that it was uh, kind of one of those decisions when I went in that was still to this day that the most tense incredible <laughs> negotiation process ever and um, I, I always negotiated my own contracts and I remember they'd called me up and said that I was. Uh, you know, they wanted the. They had a time for me to meet with the president uh-huh. of Yamaha. President of Yamaha. Yep. And uh, I'd only basically shaken his hand a few times in my years. I'd never really had much of a meeting with him at that level, and never got that high. And so I remember I told, asked my mom to just accompany me just for some kind of like, you know, I didn't want it <laughs> five or six people against one thing. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was very intense in the president's office, and I'm sitting on one side, and he's sitting on the other side, and. His English was a little broken at best, uh-huh. and um, it, it got really, really tense. And, oh, wow. and uh, then some, you know, back and forth between Japanese speaking, back and forth, back and forth, and it got to the point where it was just like this is, you know, in his eyes, were kind of crazy amount of money, and um, it just was a lot more money than he was making. And I remember somebody translated that, yeah. and that seemed like an <laughs> odd state. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, and, but you have to think back in those days. A lot of times, I guess the writers didn't make more than the president. I'm sure now they do yeah, every yeah, day. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a super intense moment, and then finally, it was just like I could see it was just kind of at that stall point where it was almost going to be faces were getting red, and it was like you mm-hmm. know we really have 
we've we've reached a point of impasse and it's like it's not nothing constructive is going to happen right now. and um so i just said well obviously you know we've um you know we've yeah. uh, you know we, we're we're a little ways away on the numbers and uh so um you know i just kind of said i appreciate everything that you guys have done for me and uh, i think i'm just gonna have to step away for a moment here and and give it some thought and i, I remember i stood up and i remember just the faces from the racing side of things yeah. the team manager kenny car and these kenny people Clark, are like, oh my, yeah, yeah. like what in the world's going on here kind of a thing and so i stood up and stepped out the door uh-huh. and uh, and my mom followed me and 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 at that time remember i have a honda contract in yeah. my car signed by honda and in my <laughs> mind at that point i had made the decision i was driving up the 405 freeway to yeah to put my name on the bottom of it and hand it over to the Honda guys. Yep. And, um, as I was heading towards the front door, I mean, I was chased down and, and Kenny asked me, so like, where are you doing? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yep. I, I go, Oh, Kenny, you, you were in the same room I was in. And yeah. at this point right now, it seems like, you know, I'm not going to get what I'm asking for. And that's what I want to ride. I mean, first of all, we're on production bikes. And second of all, it's kind of like, you know, yeah. the, you know, this is what I'm asking for to stay. Yeah, and I felt like it, I was worth it. I'd won at that point, you know, five or five championships plus the Trans USA mm-hmm. Championship for him. And I don't know that I ever finished worth this worse than about second in the championship, you know. And it's, yeah. it's I think I, I kind of second or maybe third in the 250 that one year in 80. But that was so close. I was <laughs> could have been a win. But it was, um, you know, I just felt like I'd done my job for them. And I felt like that they kind of, I don't yeah. mean, owed it to me. But I think it was, you know, I felt that they in some ways it would have been the right thing to do on their end. And, and so as I walked out the door, he asked me, I said, well, you know what? I am kind of hungry. I'll go get some, we're going to go get some lunch. Mm-hmm. And he asked me to pl- please, you know, this is kind of pre cell phone yeah, days yeah. to please call him, give him an hour and call him. So I gave him an hour to the, to the, I mean, to, <laughs> to the minute I gave him an hour and I called him up and I was literally my, in my mind, I was driving up the 405 freeway to Honda. And, yeah. Uh, he, he asked me to it was, please. Uh, it was that close. It was that oh, close. Oh, it was. It was. I'd, I'd already decided. My right. mom's kind of like, well, what do you think you're going to do? I said, I think I'm going to start riding red motorcycles. And yeah. so she's like, okay. And she was fine. And I'm just, you know, she's like, well, if that's what you want to do, you, right. you know, you're, it's your, you know more than I do. So at that point, Kenny said, please, can you come back in? And I really did. I remember telling him, I said, Kenny, I'm not coming back in there and going through another one of those. That was like ridiculous. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like that was tense. And I don't want to do that if I'm wasting my time. And he says, no, it's not a waste of your time. I said, okay. And so I drove back in and we went back to the president's office and I'm like, you know, Hey, fancy meeting you here. Yeah. It was, it was, it was like, you know, thank you for having me back. And, uh, you know, is there, do you like, I'm kind of like all ears. Yeah. And so they, they said, we've agreed to your terms. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so he went to, he went, he signed the contract. And just before he signed the contract, our Japanese guy had, he reached over and crossed out the number, the total number, and he added one dollar to it. Oh. <laughs> and so, and I was like, "What is he doing?" Yeah, and uh, I didn't know what in the heck is he doing there. And so he he had told me that he had heard rumors that there was another rider that had possibly had that same amount of money, but I, you know, it was over like a ten-year payment plan. It wasn't like all, you know, it wasn't yeah. for the duration of the actual contract. And so at that point, it was, uh, he added a dollar. He just wanted to make you the higher paid guy. Make sure the highest paid guy that he knew about in the industry. Oh, wow. I was like, well, that was 
honorable, I guess, you know, as honorable. So I signed the agreement and then, uh, you, you know, you, started our 85 season, which was again, all production bikes, but it got off to a good yeah. start. And, and, uh, it did, it yeah. did. You, uh, you hurt your wrist in 85, uh, mm-hmm. you break your leg in 87, uh, you know, and then you go on to finish your deal in 88 that we'll get to in a second. Um, yep. when do you ride a factory Honda? Where do you ride a factory Honda and whose bike is it? And do you start crying immediately afterwards? Uh, yes, 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 yes. And, (laughs) and, uh, yeah, boy, that was, uh, that, that was a whole other, a whole other chapter. I could think I could write an encyclopedia, a series of encyclopedias on all this stuff. But yeah, it was, uh, it it was kind of interesting times back then. You know, I, it, it, it was a little different than it is today. I mean, we all got along the riders from each of the teams mm-hmm. and the manufacturers, there were very few true, like, you know, I just despise this person. Yeah, you know, yeah. you had a few of those, but I'm a social guy. I get along pretty well with everybody, but we all respected each other, but we also knew we were trying to beat each other on the track. No question about it. Even teammates are trying to beat the guy, but you could, you could hang out with them off the track. Sure. I, mean, I could hang out with O'Mara and Bailey and I could hang out with Barnett, Mark Barnett still. And I, to this day still, and I'm one of the most respected friendships with right. him as anybody, but man, did we race each other like, we raced each other so hard, but we never raced each other dirty. Mm-hmm. We always raced each other to the bone and it just, you know, to the, to the it, nth degree. It was and, really and just Dogger and RJ and they were fighting over a chick. <laughs> really? Right? Yeah. And yeah, those guys, but they could seriously, honestly off the track, they could hang out. They could come to birthday. Really? Birthday oh, okay. Party so, it wasn't oh, yeah. so it wasn't no, that bad. So it wasn't that bad. No, it really wasn't. Yeah. Honestly. I mean, uh, they, we, they'd come to, birthday party at my house and they all you know we'd all be there it's like of course we would we're all on the same El Cajon club right, you know, right, we all right, grew right. up together and yeah I mean there were times there was tension over girls or something like yeah, that yeah. but in general and and, okay. and they they were it was tough because they're like siblings that grew up a little too close in the same age uh-huh. sort of a deal yeah, yeah but in general we all you know yeah did we want to beat each other on the track absolutely and right. um, you know and I think Rick probably you know, Ronnie was kind of going through some stuff that Rick thought that you probably should kind of don't be wasting your life doing this stuff. But it's maybe there was some tension from that. I don't know. But in general, most riders got along. So the point was I would go out. I'd go practicing with Jeff Ward. Yep. In fact, lifer Kawasaki guy. Yeah, I'd go yeah. pra- I practice with Scott Burnworth. Uh, you know, Scott right. was on a Yamaha factory, you know, started on Suzuki factory, went to Yamaha for a year or two, and then went back to Suzuki. Uh, you know, I yeah. practiced with, you know, Ronnie would come up and practice right in the track near my house I had. And, and yeah, did we, did we just for the, Hey, let me ride your bike. Let me ride your bike. Yeah. Did we do that? Yeah, yes. Oh, it happened. I mean, I mean yeah. it happened so when I, I was, rode, it happened I when rode, I was a mechanic. You know, yeah, the, yeah. It's always I rode. Happened. I rode. Yep. I rode factory Suzukis. I rode factory Hondas. I rode factory Kawasaki's. I rode, you know, <laughs> I no, rode what no, Yamaha. Hey, had. And nobody wanted to ride your 490 ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nobody ever asked me to ride my 490, but, uh, you know, so we rode each other's yeah. bikes, no question about it. And I did, I rode Ronnie's factory Honda uh, in 84 lo- or 85, yeah, lo- yeah, 84 at the 84. local practice track. Oh. I think it was 84. It could have been 84 or five. It yeah. didn't matter, yeah. but I was, I mean, it, it was so, re- it was so ridiculously over the top, such a difference. <laughs> I couldn't even describe it. There I was bet. one, there I was bet. one. There was one section on this track that had this gnarly rain rut that, you know, these were natural tracks that 
or, you know, I made them on the side yeah, of the hill yeah. kind of a deal. And I remember there was two giant granite boulders on each side. And if you hit this rain rut crooked, it would throw you sideways and you were going to clip a gold, giant boulder, uh -huh. a granite boulder, and, and you're probably going to die. So it was always one of those ones you never went full blast through there. So, and, and you know how the bike felt. And then I went through there on the Ronnie's bike and it was like, wait, 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 somebody graded the track, you know, and it's mm -hmm. like, I went back and I went back and went through that about three more times. This is the most ridiculous thing ever. Yeah. Like it didn't even feel the bump. It didn't even twitch. It didn't do anything. And yeah. then the other thing, it was really crazy. Like coming into corners, you could just break so hard and it never kicked. It never like the rear end never came up. It just squatted both front and rear. I mean, it had beautiful disc brakes on it that worked really well. It had great suspension chassis. It almost felt slow to be honest because the bike handled so well. And uh, you've probably heard your riders tell you that a fast motorcycle, like a bad handling motorcycle always feels fast. Yeah. And, and, and a good handling motorcycle feels slow. And, and, and that's kind of the way that was. And it was Oh. Light years away, light years above what we had, no question about it. I bet, right? I bet, yeah, you were just like, holy smokes. I know uh, Ronnie tells a story about when he went to Cowie in 86, and now that's a full production, right? Everybody's on production bikes at that point. And he's got a set of his 85 forks laying in his garage, and he said he mounts them up, or he doesn't do it, but his mechanic mounts them up to his Cowie, and they worked so good. Uh, and But obviously, Cowie's like, yeah, you can't do that, Ronnie. You can't run those. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, we can't yeah. show up with factory yeah. show us on your bike. So, uh, yeah, kind of funny how good that stuff was, right? Um, yeah, it was. It was incredible. They, uh, yeah, the bikes so were. I, knowing that, and, and sorry if I'm interrupting you, just tell no me problem. to shut up. Uh, knowing that and, and talking about how good those bikes were and you rode it and everything else, um, my next question for you in the what if uh, podcast that we're doing here, like what if RJ doesn't go there and how much and, and Mickey Diamond and, and George Holland and 125 guys that, I mean, Mickey Diamond went from a 500 Husqvarna to winning the national championship, all that kind of stuff. Um, wh how much, what, how much of a help were those bikes? Like truly, truly is Rick, you know, one of the all-time greats, if he doesn't go to Honda and, and, and is O'Mara and Bailey, are they not winning as much? Um, that kind of stuff. Like, it's obviously impossible to talk about, but what do you think? Um, it would have been harder. <laughs> I think it would have been harder. Yep. And R R Rick and I always laugh because my original mechanic, uh, Jim Felt, when I went to Yamaha, my first mechanic was Ed Scheidler for about four months. Yep. And then... When Pierre Karsmacher signed with Yamaha, he wanted to have Ed because he had a relationship, at least knew him. So they gave me a guy named Jim Felt, who I didn't even know at the time, but he ended up being a fantastic yeah. mechanic. Yeah. But I remember, yeah, you know, I was giving Ricky my practice bikes, you know, my YZ125 practice bikes. As we rode on production bikes practice, and we never had factory bikes or rarely had factory bikes to practice on. So, mm -hmm. so when Rick got so tall, he couldn't ride mini bikes anymore. He's <laughs> like, man, he's got to do something here. The kid's growing like a weed he went from like being yeah. a little 12, 12 year old kid that's about five feet tall all of a sudden i look you know look up and it blink my eyes and <laughs> right. it's like damn dude you're looking me eye to eye here and you're 13 you right. know and it's right. so so i gave him you know i loaned him some of my practice bikes and he raced those for a while and and i remember jim felt telling me it's like man you better be careful this kid's gonna be knocking on your door pretty soon and it's like yeah and and, and rick's like rick and i both like hey i'm gonna get there one way or the other i might get there a little quicker with your help no question right. about it and that's kind of the way i felt it too it's like hey marty smith was awfully kind to me and i used to practice with him mm -hmm. kind of he showed me a lot of ropes and you know what yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 
you know, could I have tried to hinder Rick? Like what was the, what would be a point of doing that? There isn't, you know, there right. wasn't any, did I help him a little quicker? I'm sure, but he would have made it on his own. So getting back to like the, the original, your original yeah. question, it's like, I, I, I get, I'll let you kind of be the judge of that. I mean, Honda, did they win? How many years in a row did they win the 125 championship? It was quite a bit from the time, you know, all through the eighties. Yeah, uh, 86 the the to, uh, 86, no, 86. For that, Rick, well, Wardy Ronnie, won it. Wardy won it. No, Ron, Ron, Ronnie's first oh, championship. Yeah, Ronnie '85. So they went all the way yep. until '85, uh, '86, uh, '87, '90. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so they they won a lot in a row. I mean, there's no question. And they did it with about four different riders that I yeah. can think of. I mean, they had Ronnie for one year, and then they had Mickey for two, and then they did they have George Holland. Yeah, and, and uh, Kudrowski. And yep. Kradowski, yep. and then yeah, so so they had they had a streak there, and I know those bikes were quite good. I mean, yep. most people talk about them; they were like two strokes that were making forty horsepower or more or something. And so, and they not only that, they just handled so well, and the brakes were so good, the chassis were so good. So, so but um, yeah, I think it made it yeah. easier, and 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 they did the same kind of. They had a big powerhouse team in the two fifty and the, in the five hundred class too. Right? Yeah, it's impossible to answer, but uh, it certainly helped them. Right? Certainly um, helped these guys. Yeah. Uh, you know, you look at Holland; he. he he couldn't do it on a Suzuki for a long time. He was a good rider. He won nationals every year and couldn't quite do it. Switches to a Honda and, you know, wins the series pretty easily, right? I always bug Kehoe. I'm like, you just needed to get on a Honda, Eric. That's all you needed to no, do. No, <laughs> no, I, I hear you. I mean, from, from in my world, I mean, you know, yeah, Bob Hanna left on a, and saying he couldn't win on these bikes and he went over to Honda mm-hmm. and immediately winning. And then shortly after that, you had uh, Ron Lachine leave and mm-hmm. start winning immediately. And then you had uh, Rick Johnson leave and become uh, what I mean, you know, Hall of Famer that he is. RJ's right 85, after that, RJ's 85 season with you at Yamaha was he was the defending uh-huh. 250 national champion, and he was just uh-huh. oh, he was a he was a fourth to fifth place guy in Supercross, you know, top five guy, and then mm-hmm. he was a mm-hmm. top three or four guy outdoors, and he goes from that to a Honda in '86 and becomes the guy with David right all year okay. long. So, so yeah, so I, yep. I think yeah, you answered. You know, yeah, I guess you, I answered. You, 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 make, <laughs> you sort of answer your own question, right. make your own argument there, and then uh, and then we also had Mickey go from winning championships over to Yamaha, and I don't know, did I don't yeah. think Mickey ever won a national no, or a Supercross he didn't. Nope. on Yamaha, and then you, you know you had Jeff Stanton. You can you forget, oh we, yeah, I didn't leaving, even right. leaving Jeff Stanton exactly, out. Exactly, don't, don't, you, it's pretty hard to leave Jeff Stanton out, and Jeff was yeah. a, you know my teammate on Yamaha. He was one of the last of the. Last of the guys to stay, and uh, oh, Jeff is barely a top ten guy in Supercross in eighty in eighty eight. You know what I mean? Ah, he's probably better at top. Yeah. Let's say he's a top ten, but yeah, he's yeah. I, I hear you. And then uh, yeah, there were any Supercross champion in eighty nine. Um, so in eighty eight, you you have a terrible year in eighty seven. You break your leg at Hangtown, your lower leg. By the way, thank you for that. You were on. Thank you for that in the sense that you were. Uh, I read the cycle news for this uh, a couple days ago, maybe a couple weeks ago. You were going to get third overall, and then you break your leg on the last lap, and that gives Rollerball third overall, the great Canadian <laughs> champion Rollerball third overall. It, rollerball would have been nothing without his good mechanic. Yeah, wait, yeah, yeah. You, exactly. Wait, wait, no, you and Marshall, uh, right? Wish, <laughs> you I and Marshall. I, I wish I was. Marshall, 
was yeah, Marshall. this guy. Um, but yeah. so anyway, so thank you for breaking your lower leg and giving rollerball a, a yeah, podium. Yeah, that was the weirdest thing ever. Real quick, I, I got you know Wardy and, and Johnson were going at it up yep. front, and I, and I was I actually had I think I had a couple good starts. I gave him a little fit for a little while, but I I, I finished third first moto, second moto third all the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, same kind of a thing. I remember seeing some photos where we were dicing for a while up front, but they 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 got away from me and. Uh, and so I was third place last lap and, and unfortunately, I believe it was Billy Frank had crashed really badly and, and they were life lighting him out. Oh, wow. And they basically, they basically rerouted us at the very edge of the track, like, so they could get yep. the medics on the track and, and get him off. And no, red fl- no red flag in these days. No, no red flags <laughs> in these flags. And so I'm just going about, I mean, it's full yellow flag. Yeah. Like, you, you know, they're, they're going, flaggers are going over here, over here, yeah, over yeah, here. Yeah. And the track, we had a lot of rain day or two earlier and the track was very rutted in spots and these were probably 50 to 75 yard long rut section and i'm going down it going about 75 percent under yellow fake conditions and i hit a pothole that i have no idea where it came from bottomed out the front rear pops up and the rear pops up and goes out of the rut and cross ruts I don't even fall. I run my own leg off the peg and oh, okay. run it run it over with my back wheel. Yeah. And all of a sudden I felt my leg break and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. That yeah, hurt yeah. like you know, you can imagine. And I'm sitting there on the motorcycle going, I've got a broken leg, like, but I gotta get back to the pits kind of a deal. And I literally rode all the way back. And there's a picture of me holding my leg that shows up once in a while on Facebook. Oh, I've never seen it. Okay. And they're like, what's he doing? He's only got one hand on the handlebar and he's like, it's like you're, you think it's like a Photoshop. Something's weird with the photo. It's like, you don't know I'm bent forward and I only have one hand on the handlebar and I'm literally holding my broken leg as I ride back to the truck. And I remember pulling into the paddock and john r had already left the mechanics area and went back to my mechanic john r yeah he went back to the yamaha truck and i was like hey i was yelling at him like catch me catch me yeah, yeah. and he's like like he looked at me yeah, he's like, like what, what are you, you talking about right catch me oh, it isn't it's cheerleading <laughs> practice here and he's like and, and he's what i go i broke my leg and i and, and he holds me yeah like he's holding the bike and i'm on the bike and i'm obviously in some pain and he's like, what are you talking about? You just got third. I'm yeah. like, what world are you living in? I just watched you for 40 minutes plus two laps yeah, or totally. plus one and a half lap. And you're like, no, and the, like not even a half a lap to go. I ran my leg over and sure enough, I broke my leg. And like I said, I knew it was broken. And uh, it was funny because uh, uh, the neighbor of the kid, Jeff Grafton, that some people might remember from my old instruction video, he was there and he had a broken leg. And I said, hey, how high can those crutches go? And he was about one week away from getting his cast off and i said i need that thing worse than you do and uh we drove a rental car i drove him with my left foot all the way drove the rental car back to the airport i flew home and i did have a cell phone at 80 80 whatever seven or eight yeah, yeah. and uh 87 I, and i called my next door neighbor the orthopedic surgeon and asked him to meet me at the uh, hospital and uh, when he saw the x-ray he came back in and basically yelled at me and uh, he was like, "Why would he yell? Why would he yell at you? What?" Just he's for, like, oh. "Are you crazy? You just where you were okay, in Sacramento yeah, yeah. and you flew home from Sacramento on an airplane with that leg, and like you're kidding, right?" Yeah, I yeah. said, "No, I, I broke it just you know five hours ago." And he's like, "You are like you're <laughs> the stupidest person I know." And I'm like, "What am I supposed to do? I'm up there with a kid that doesn't even have a driver's license. The only two like." <laughs> 
yeah. I'm not going to get stuck in the world. The circus moves on. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm not getting stuck in Sacramento for a week by myself. Right, right. Um, so, yeah. So. Okay. So thank you for the rollerball. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, 80, so you come back, you're number 44, uh, really strong look with the pink JT. I love this look. I've told you this a few times, Serrano helmet and uh, a really, really good look. You get fifth in motocross, fourth in supercross. Of course, you win the final supercross of the year, right? Uh, and then Yamaha lets you go, um, which, you know, a little bit weird times for you for all the things you've done for them. And we've covered that before, but um what if you had stayed in 89? What Did you have anything? You went to KTM in Europe. Uh, Jim Lewis and I did a podcast about this uh, maybe six months ago. He was he told some great stories of getting that bike in a box and KTM trying to develop that thing. Um, what if you what if you'd stayed in America, though? Did you have anything? Were you thinking of it um, and all of that? Because, look, fifth in motocross and fourth in supercross is damn good, even a quote, quote at your at, even at your advanced age, quote unquote, which is probably back then twenty seven, twenty eight. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, it, that is yeah. crazy. You yeah. think about it. I was twenty eight. I just turned twenty right. years old, and, and I, back I was, then it was like, I, oh god, he's foot, so old. One foot in the grave. Yeah, <laughs> right. But it you know what? Crazy. So, did you have a chance? Did you think about staying? Did you try to stay? You know what? Honestly, at that point. Um, I had been with Yamaha for nearly 13 years, and I think that the other factories uh, just were, uh, they were, you know, they, again, mm -hmm. they had, they had most of their top riders. I mean, Kawasaki obviously had Jeff and Suzuki really wasn't, I don't know that they had any marquee players. They had O'Mara still then. Yeah. 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 Johnny. And, and, uh, so at that point it wasn't like my phone was ringing mm -hmm. off the hook and Yamaha was, it, it was, it was not kind of, it was kind of obvious at that point it had already gotten into kind of an odd relationship. Yep. I mean, it even had started the year before, you know, I remember them calling me up and, and, and I was, had a broken, I had a leg of full length cast all the way up to my uh, crotch area and, and my ankle was immobilized and, I even in, I talked to my doctor about, it's like, listen, I can't just let myself get out of shape. Like, what is it you're trying to do with this full length cast thing? It's just, it's the worst thing ever. I right. can't do anything. And he's like, I just can't have you twist. And I'm like, okay, how about, so I literally got two knee brace hinges from CTI and we, I made a custom cast <laughs> that bent in the knee, but it wouldn't allow me to twist. So I had this lower cast on from the, you know, just below the knee all the way down around my ankle. Mm -hmm. Then I had this cast like a ring around my thigh and then uh i had these knee brace uh, to keep my knee open and exposed and I, I and i adopted a booty that i could ride my bicycle and clip into my cycling <laughs> cleats <laughs> and i moved up to idaho and i literally would be riding like going crazy i was yeah. probably riding 300 350 miles a week cycling with this cast on and i was imagine, imagine somebody point, driving by you what the hell is up with that guy <laughs> driving by how about the fact when i started entering cycling races all over boise and you know Idaho and all this stuff, and I'm, I'm training at elevation up here at six thousand to nine thousand feet. I'm training with all these guys that are great cyclists, yeah. and I'm doing all this stuff. And I get a phone call from Yamaha, and they think I'm faking it or something. And then I literally, they tell me that they have a, con a clause in their contract that they need. I need to go see one of their doctors of their choices. Day is this McCarty or is this uh, is this Ken? Yeah, Clark? it was kind of that group, okay. and. Um, I was like, you're kidding, right? And it was like, yeah, uh, Bob Hanna has a friend up there or something. He's an orthopedic surgeon. They want, you know, you got an appointment tomorrow at 1030 to go see him. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Like, what do you think I'm doing up here 
smoking, yeah, yeah. You know, smoking cigarettes and drinking beers or something. It's <laughs> yeah. like, and, I, and honestly, so, um, I, I went in and the doctor's like, no, it's matter of fact, yeah, it's, he's, <laughs> right. he's a head, head of schedule. And I mean, the guy looks about as lean and fit as you can get. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't, I think he, I think he's doing what you're supposed to be doing. And he's, he's following the textbook, uh, right. recovery from a long bone fracture. And so, and then when, even when Yamaha, I did fly down and, and see Yamaha, they looked at me like, Oh, oh you're obviously not yeah. just fake. I mean, like, you yeah, know, I, I was probably leaner and more fit than I did when I raced, you know? And so that was kind of just an awkward time in general. And, and, and so I kind of knew well before the last race at uh, LA Coliseum that, you know, my services yeah. were going to be no longer requested needed by Yamaha so it was uh and like yeah, a tough but, racing ride and like that's is that something you want to do or like back no, then no you know at that point honestly it was I was comfortable enough and I didn't you know I certainly didn't blow through my money right. and, and it was a situation where I, I kind of in my mind thought by the time I'm 30 I want to retire and and it, it was a it was a, a time too if you remember there were a couple of my close closest racing you know uh, just a people who contemporaries i would call them i mean the david bailey's the andre mallers mm-hmm. the different people there have been some people getting hurt and it was like okay how, how far do you want to yep. stretch this thing if it's not meant to be it's not meant to be kind of a deal and i certainly didn't really want to step down to a privateer level ride and there weren't the strong privateer teams back right. then as there were you know and so it was it, i was kind of in my mind going to retire and then i got contacted by selvaraj and, and and some of the guys at ktm and said hey listen i, I got I want you to come out would you mind coming and having a meeting with us and so i thought well i might as well you know yeah all, so that's what started and yep. they told me about this grand plan that ktm had um, they knew that they didn't have the product to sell in America and that the American market didn't accept the left hand Kickstarter, the right hand drive chain train, uh, the chains and the off the wall, you know, ergonomics of the motorcycle mm-hmm. and just in general, all the KTM stuff that we all knew from back in those days. And, and that not that it didn't work and not that it didn't work in Europe. I remember getting my you know, butt kicked by Keys Vanderbilt on one of those at Unadilla GP. So I know they could get them around yeah. the track fast, but it was just something KTM knew that the largest off-road motorcycling market in the world was United States, and they weren't even scratching the surface. So that being said, they needed a product that the American market would accept. And so they figured I was the guy to help them develop the bike and get mm-hmm. it to where the Amer- American market and, and, and an American rider with a name. And, and uh, so it, it, it was pretty intriguing, to be honest with yeah. you. And, and Thanks for listening to the Fly Racing Racer X podcast with the golden boy, Brock Lover. Thank you for uh, listening again. Thank you to Fly Racing for making this happen. Also, thank you to Renthal Maxis, but also motorsport.com. Free shipping on anything over 79 bucks. Uh, just go there and uh, order some OEM parts or some aftermarket parts. They got a dedicated team of gearheads there waiting to uh, help you out and uh, give you some free shipping, give you some great prices. They have a fantastic return policy. They sponsor the uh, Lucas Oil Pro Motocross Championships. Phil Nicoletti, Ryan Villopoto, myself are uh, motorsport.com athletes. So please check them out, motorsport.com. If there's any issues, any problems going on with motorsport.com, drop me a line on social media or using the contact form at pulpmex.com, and I will make sure that the guys at Motorsport get you handled. So thank you to those guys. Also, Coba Links, built and uh, developed and everything in Boise, Idaho. It's a lowering suspension link from everything from Aprilia to Yamahas. Pulpamex is the code to save with Coba Links. Get free shipping in the U.S. and save with Cobalinks.com. If you've got a, a, a female 
in your family that rides and maybe the bike's a bit tall. If you're a shorter stature person yourself, uh, the Kobolinks will make you uh, feel more confident, increase your plushness, and make your bike handle a little bit better. K-O-U-B-A links.com for more information. Use the code PulpMX to save. You can also get those at motorsport.com, by the way. So thanks for listening. All right, here's the rest of the podcast with Brock Glover. Was it good money? Was it good money? Do you remember that? It was decent enough. um, But to me, I grew up, I mean, my first motocross races, I mean, you know, I got to see Joel Robert ride and and Edison die. I mean, I was eight, nine years old, like going, oh my God, like seeing the USGP at at, at the Carlsbad, uh, you know, seeing the Europeans in in that color and pageantry and the the, the GP thing and and the European thing was just what I grew up kind of. Yep. You know, going to the Torsten Hallman distributorship just a neighborhood away, you know, or a city away from El Cajon and La Mesa and, and, and listening to Lars Larson, who was a local. Mm-hmm. Lars was a local guy that raced a lot of races, you know, from Sweden and just hearing all this stuff. So I grew up kind of, uh, I don't not idolizing, yeah. but just certainly respecting and just uh, mass amounts of respect for the Grand Prix world and anytime i raced over there in europe i always loved it and and so it was kind of a twofold thing where i could do the development part and be involved in an all-new project and get to race you know the Mm -hmm. world championships and 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 go to all these different countries and travel and so it it was like yeah why not you get to see uh uh, a young guy from france named jean-michel bale um and and you know kind of see the future of of his career, uh, he went on to you know won the '88 title and he won the '89 title. Then he comes here. Um, all right, uh, all good stuff. Thanks for doing the Fly Racing Racer X podcast, presented by Maxis Renthal Motorsport.com and Cobolinks. Uh, a few more questions for you, Brock. I, I was hoping to do this in an hour, but I haven't even scratched the surface here. Um, <laughs> okay, '89. Uh, Rick Johnson. Uh, we just talked about him. A good buddy of yours. Somebody that you really helped out. He is the dominant rider on the circuit in 89. He wins the first five Supercrosses, and uh, and then Stanton beats him in Atlanta. And then the next week, uh, Danny Storbeck lands on his wrist and breaks it. And although he wins, uh, I think he wins a couple nationals after that, Gainesville and uh, a Unadilla 501, he's never the same guy. Um, he was the guy, the number one rider in the world in 89. How much, how much more does he win if he doesn't break his wrist? Like, does he have another run? Does he, I think... No doubt he takes some of Jeff Stanton's titles uh, away from him. Does he keep it going for, what, two more years, three more years? Where is he at, RG, at that point? Yeah, when you said uh, does he keep winning or does he win some more, I guess the answer is yeah, he wins a bunch more. Yeah. Uh, there's there's no question. I, I That stupid Gainesville track, <laughs> as much as I loved it, was my favorite Florida track. It caught me off in 85. I crashed there myself and broke a bone in the wrist and and uh, got Rick, too, with a Danny Storbeck yeah. collision. And, 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 again, it was just one of those racing accidents. But Rick's wrist was never the same about mm-hmm. it again. And I remember, I think it was in 90. Uh, he was, I think he's number 13 on the Honda. I was retired and I was down at the San Diego Supercross and, and, and obviously hanging out with Rick at that one. And, and he, he had a moment where he landed off a triple and he was pretty dang sure that the throttle would like, he thought the carb, like the yeah. spring was too weak and the carb was sticking in it. And he realized later it was just his wrist. It was like, locked. it just locked. He couldn't, yeah. he lands off a jump and he can't, he can't literally release the throttle into the off position so the thing goes straight to the you know berm and he goes flying off the track and crashes and it's like it's 
you know, feels to him like it's a stuck throttle and it's, it's obviously his wrist. And he just really honestly just had one of his last wrist surgeries within the last, I think, six yeah. months or so. And finally, uh, ironically, went and saw a doctor that I was kind of recommending for quite a while that he goes see. But it, it, his, you know, that was, you know, decades too late. I don't, yep. I'm not, I'm not a hand specialist and surgeon, but I don't think he, it was a complicated injury, but I don't think he got his, the, the best results and, and the best work done mm-hmm. on his wrist. And unfortunately, it literally injured his career. And, and it's, um, it was. Do, uh, does yeah. he keep winning in 90, 91? At that point, he's yeah, 29. He was in the sh- yeah. yeah, he was in the shape of his life. And as yep. we know right now, you can keep, you're physically, you're not you're not over the hill at 28 or 29 years old. Mentally, our sport is very, very hard on riders. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's too hard on riders. And that's why you see, you know, you talk about another person that was a great rider, Damon Bradshaw. And Damon, you know, retired by the time he was, what, 21, 22 years old, I yeah. think it was. And it was like, here was the next guy when I was on Yamaha. He was the kind of the boy wonder coming yeah. up. They hired they hired Mickey, thinking Mickey was kind of the new Supercross era, good jumper, good you know, stylish rider. He was the guy that was kind of going to fill that interim gap before Damon Bradshaw came in and filled it up. But and it was shortly after Damon came in. But when Damon you know quit, it seemed like we all thought Damon quit too early. Right. But then on the flip side. That Supercross championship that hurt. I know. I know it hurt. I, I can relate to it. And um, on top of that, I look back at it and see like he he raced a lot more years than I did. I really didn't even. I snuck the first time I ever raced was when I was thirteen, and I snuck when I did it. And I got grounded for a few more months until I just wore my mom down <laughs> to let me race again. And it was like I really didn't start racing. Like okay, I'm going to race every week when I, until I was fourteen. And and by the time I retired. Uh, you know, I had 16 years under my belt. I was pretty much done. Well, with time Damon was 22 years old, he had more than 16 years oh, under yeah. his belt. Yeah. And he eats these kids that start racing at three or four years old, and there's a lot of pressure on them. I, I can see how they mentally, I, I think their bodies, bodies can keep doing it, but I think their minds are yeah. it's just hard to get motivated. So, um, yeah, of course, Rick keeps winning and, um, you know, there's, there's no question, uh, injuries that, you know, and, and obviously a guy we saw David Bailey would have quit, would have kept winning. Yep. I mean, there's just guys that would have kept winning. Uh, injuries are just a terrible part of our sport. If, uh, Jean-Michel Bale wins the 90, it wins everything in 91. And then, uh, in 92, he wants to go road racing and do the next challenge. And I've talked to him about this, uh, many times. And he just said that was it. He accomplished his goals and, you know, he was moving on to the next thing which is seems unbelievable when you look back on it. It's really phenomenal. But if he's motivated, JMB, like does, does he keep winning in 90? I mean, 92 he won, I think, the most races or the second most races to Bradshaw. Uh, yeah, 92 Bradshaw won the most. Then Bale won the second most. But Stanton gets the crown. Um, does, does Jeremy McGrath do what he does in 93 if JMB is still there and still motivated? Boy, that's a good question. I, I don't think he does it as easily. We right. talked, you know, kind of that. That mm-hmm. I don't mean to be a, the default answer, but yeah, I don't think he does it as easily. I mean, yeah. I I had the pleasure of knowing the Bale family, you know, his brother Christian, and and going to their house in, in France and hanging oh, okay. out with them yeah, and, yeah. and see. So I, I, I've been watching. I was watching JMB when he was on little KX eighties and things, and and he, you know, he 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 was a hundred percent positive. I mean, and I was at the time the five hundred national yeah. champion, and I was in the set. We were. 
this particular time. How would you hold on a second? Back up. Back up. How do you get to know Bale on a KX80 when you're the American 500 champion? Gosh, I think it was just you know I went to I went to France early. Uh, I think I went there in '77 or '78 when I met the guys from Moto Ver okay. and J- JT relationship with some of the guys. Sure, uh, you know, obviously JT was huge in France, and even like you know, we talk about like where the Mark Blanchard came from, who's you know uh, comes yep. over and starts uh, you know uh, you know the one industries yeah one yeah. he yep. starts one industries he helps davy start racer x he goes into uh 100 etc so and mark's you know was a great designer for jt and, and he is a, a teenager he dreamed about moving to america and working for jt so there's always i've had this long tie from this you know 77 78 for me going to france and if you remember i actually when i raced in gps i competed with a french license because uh, it was just so difficult yeah. to try to get medical releases every time I wanted to race a motorcycle, you know, 30 sometimes a year over right. there in the international races and the GPs, you know, the AMA was, you're dealing with fax machines and people, time differences. It was just hard. So I had a long relationship with the French uh, in general yeah. and, and, yeah. Mo- and Moto Ferret. So one day they came up with this idea that, um, you know, that we were going to do a shootout of all the 500cc motorcycles. Mm-hmm. And we were going to do it right down the street from the Bale family's home. Oh, okay. And so we went out to the track and Ronnie came along that day, I remember. And um, and we all went down and, and uh, they had all these brands from Husqvarna's to Mako's to, you know, and all the Japanese brands too. We all got to just spend all day long riding these different this bikes. This is a factory, factory Yamaha rider riding other production bikes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. And, and we just, uh, you know, there's, I remember seeing pictures of, there's still some stuff floating around from those old magazine shops on the internet, you know, me wheeling a Husqvarna, you know, it's wow, like a Husky. that's crazy. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like, what's, yeah. he, what's he doing on a Husqvarna? It was like from that day. That, right, that test right. day, oh, wow. and so and so, it was a lot of fun, and, and we got to race around the track a bunch. And Ronnie was supposed to do some 125 testing, and I was the 500 guy, but we ended up switching every. We rode, I mean, I must have rode 15 different kind of bikes that day. And JMB boy, he he was like. He was positive. There's no question. He wanted all he wanted to do was have a jumping contest with me, <laughs> and he just wanted. He was positive on that KX80 yeah. that he could jump farther, and it was just this typical 80s flat straightaway leads <laughs> yeah. up to one single yeah, ski yeah. jump, just landing out on a slightly uphill flat landing, and it was just <laughs> there was no double, there was no table, there was no smoothness yeah, in yeah, it. Just- but he got, that kid could damn near jump as far as I could on <laughs> 80 as I was doing on a 500. And I mean, I was hitting it hard on yeah, a 500. Yeah, that's funny. So, yeah. So, and, and of course, then it turns off to bicycles. Then it turns off to his brother yeah. had this cool little Renault R5 little turbocharged wannabe, you know, rally car. And we're, you need to go flat in this corner. He kept telling me like, that you don't let that off. Don't let off. Yeah, you yeah. can go flat. Like we're going to the restaurant and he's trying to have me go full rally mode in the thing while I'm driving. Right. Yeah. So I had a long, uh, <laughs> I had a fun, long uh, relationship and, yeah. uh, and the utmost respect for him. And then of course, in the 90. The 90 GPs or the eight, excuse me, the 89 yeah. GPs when he was world championship in 89 GPs. We, I spent a ton of time with him traveling around the world uh, and having fun with him and as cool. he went on win his world championship. Yeah. I mean, you talk to Dave Arnold, you talk to Roger, they say in 92, Dan Bentley also in 92, his, he barely practiced. He was, he was already looking and lining up road racing test days. He was, you know, doing all of that in 92. 
and he would be winning supercrosses. You know, so he already had one uh, one foot out the door in '92. So, <laughs> how yeah. about the fact that like his idea? I talked to him, and he's like, "Oh man, what did like how like practicing?" He would take a motocross CR250, a full factory bike, knobbies on it, and all. He spent hours at a go kart track <laughs> on a CR250 right, right. factory practice bike with yeah. knobbies on it. Right. And he would just power slide the thing all around a go kart track on asphalt, yeah. and that was. And think about it; it's like, of course, incredible practicing yeah. Yeah. bike control, but like nobody thought. He thought outside the box all day long. Right. He lived outside the box. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? Uh, all right, next question for you, Brock Lover. Uh, we talked about Ron Lachine. What if he, like, actually trained? Like, he, obviously, the stories are amazing, and, and most of them are true. And, you know, uh, one time uh, uh, he, loved to, he loved to ride his jet ski for training, he said. <laughs> he liked to do that. What if he got actually serious like you or Rick or, or Wardy? Like, would he have just dominated, or was it a possibility where, you know, it grinds him down, it's no fun, all of that kind of stuff? Uh, I think the latter is a lot closer to the reality and the truth than the, uh, than yep. the first part of that. Okay. Uh, the, re- the reason I say this is uh, we all want to think, uh, the you know, that if he just got serious about it and, you know, yep. went full, full practice mode and train mode and went all Stanton on us, that he would have uh, – he would have been – you know, dominating. But on the flip side, if you remember in the 85 championship of the Supercross championship, Ronnie was actually in the hunt. Yeah. And I, I'd heard that he'd been out actually practicing and training and really like, Trying. it was like, <laughs> right. yeah, it would really was kind of consuming what he was supposed to be doing, what he was thinking about all day long. He wasn't spending it down in the lakeside uh, gravel pits at the jet ski, the jet ski track yeah, yeah. <laughs> where that was where, yeah, we'd all, I'd go, we'd go over there, Bert, Scott Burworth and myself, we'd go over there and practice our, and then you know bring our jet skis and mm-hmm. go jump in the pond over there but that ronnie just used that it is 100 percent of his practice yes. we'd actually have dirt bikes before we did right, that but right. uh, but um uh, so it, before the last supercross or two he's in in particular last supercross where there was a lot of pressure on the line and and then you know he, he, he you would think he would have performed pretty well because he's been practicing yeah. he's taking it real serious he actually he had a really bad day uh, you know can you say it was the pressure did he fold or whatever mm-hmm. I, I don't know but it wasn't really i think ronnie rode the best when he really wasn't overthinking and he was just yep. so natural he was so natural on a motorcycle such a great talent and, and and we all saw how he could just do that at any given moment he'd be the fastest guy in the world and, and, and you just it's i mean it, it's kind of incredible i really love the fact that like the Cajon zone and myself and any, at any given time, you know, I, I just yep. was so, so lucky to be around. I mean, if it weren't, it wasn't the Marty Smiths, it was a, you know, Rick Johnson's and Ron Lachine's and myself or whatever, like any given day, like you're talking like truly could be the fastest guys in the world on a motocross track. Yeah, absolutely. And we right? all, yeah. and we're all kind of like, we're just guys hanging out, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, yeah. but do you realize? Yeah. Cause at any given time, Ronnie could be, and he proved it many times in motocross, the nations and whatever, where he yeah. would just walk away with a one, one moto finish. And, and, and I'm sure it drove, you know, the costers and the, whoever who drove him crazy as team managers, because it was like, man, like, I don't even think we should put you on the motocross, the nation's team. Mm-hmm. Cause you're screwing up so badly. But then all of a sudden, 
when we do three on the team, you go out and go one, one. Yeah, it's yeah. like, what if we would have taken, what if I would have not put you on the team? How stupid would I have looked, you yeah. know? And, and so it, it, those days are, yeah, it's just yep. when you have a talent like a JMB and you have a talent like a Ron Lachine, you just got to let them, so, they're not going to, they're not going to fit inside that typical mold, yep. stereotypical mold that we all know as, as motocross riders. Right, right. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He came into that Pasadena round, I think four back, you and Wardy are tied and he's four back and, and it could have gone yeah, any yeah. which way, you know? Um, yeah. uh, okay. So this isn't applicable to Ronnie because he had a fantastic career with, with the national championship and all these wins indoors and out. Who's a rider from your era or maybe, you know, even after when you were done riding that you thought was really talented that you thought had really a lot of skills on the motorcycle, but never really won anything, uh, never really performed, but someone that you're like, man, if this kid could get on a straight and narrow or he could train or whatever. And again, like Ronnie's not the example because he had a fantastic career. Um, is there somebody that comes to mind? Besides Jojo Keller? Oh, I don't know. He's a Jojo. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I just, for one, I love the guy, but yep. for two, that guy, he, it would blow my mind. You yep, know, he was a, yep. you know, he was a larger guy. He was mm -hmm. typical of that era where there's somebody with just so much, he was like a Marty Tripes, you know? And then, uh, you know, both of those guys are just so, uh, you know, I saw Jojo just come in, you know, and do stoppies and then put his bike on the stand in the middle yeah. of a stoppie and do things where, you know, he could wheelie these, like he was a Doug DeMocus on a bike. He just had so much balance and talent and high end, you know, the, uh, the, uh, hand eye coordination and whatever it may be. Yep. He, he was a guy, but I think you're looking for probably somebody a little, maybe that did a little bit more. I, I don't know, but I think, you know, Jojo was always for me, was one of those guys that was kind of fun yeah. to watch do his, do his task, but he wasn't built for super cross, right, you know, right. per se. And, and I'm sure there's, you know, I mean, you throw out some names and I'll probably go, yeah, I forgot them or forgot them, right, but right. there's, there's lots of guys that had uh, a lot Jojo's of Jojo's a good one. Jojo's a good yeah, one. I watched, yeah, um, just, I watched 85 Millville a while ago. You're out with an injury. Uh, I think David's there. Um, you've got the title clinched by now. It's one of the last rounds of the year. I think 85 500s. Jojo is gone in the first moto. He is gone. Yeah. And then he gets a front flat. But you know yeah. what I mean? Like, you're just like, wow. Like, that's just, you know, you don't really, me as a kid seeing his name in the results, I don't remember him doing that type of stuff, but that's legit. Yeah. So. Yeah. He and I actually on the 500, he was riding that CR 500. I was on the YC 490. There were some times I don't, you know, and, and David was in that hunt too. We There were some times we had to work a little harder and you might, you, right, we, right. we might, you, we might be accredited with their trying to get around Jojo or beat Jojo. He was, he's, he had a lot of talent. As you said, I, at Millville that race, he, you know, he was, I, I know I wasn't there. I had broken the yeah. trying to get it ready for the, for the last Supercross race. But, but, uh, again, he, yeah, that he was, one, and I think yeah. there was something at Washougal yeah, too. He, I think he, he won the, the, the 85 when Honda moved Bailey down. Um, uh -huh. he won the first moto or got second and then he crashed back in one of the motos that gave him David's bike and he, yep. he basically had an overall in the hand, but he, he folded. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I think there was more to it than okay. just crashing though. I think did something happen to the bike that caused, I, I remember him telling me that story, but I do, I do know at Millville something happened too, where he had yeah. like a couple of back to backs and that was, that was such an odd situation because there was almost zero chance. I mean, literally there wasn't a 1% chance that David would lose second place in the 500 championship that year at 85. Mm -hmm. And so they, they opted to move him to the 250 class to help maybe try to help Johnny uh, Johnny win that championship if it was at all 
all possible in 85 there. And, uh, and so they moved <laughs> down to the 250 class and sure as heck, the one guy, mm-hmm. the one guy that David didn't need to win the overall and to score just enough points was Eric Eaton yep. on the Yamaha support rider. And, and Eaton, I think went like two one or something yeah. and won the overall. He was, a, he was local from that Northwest area. And that was the only national Eric ever won, but it was, it was one of those things where Honda was like, what the heck just happened? Kind of a deal. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, all right, a couple more before we wrap it up here on the show. Good stuff. Thanks, Brock, for your time. Um, thank you to Fly Racing, flyracing.com, of course. Check it out, RacerX uh, Magazine. Please subscribe. Uh, how do we fix – and maybe maybe you don't think we need to. Uh, give us, give me your opinion on how do we fix 250 Supercost class, or do you think it's perfect the way it is? What are we doing here? We got uh, guys in there forever. We got some guys that get kicked out too early. Uh, obviously, we saw um, all of that uh, happen. Um, what's your opinion on that? You know, if I gave you my honest opinion, which I probably will, cause I, I tend to do that. I, I'd be talking out both sides of my mouth. Okay. I could argue both. I could, yeah, yeah. I could argue, I could argue pretty strongly both sides of this. One side of it is, Hey, the very first time I ever raced a supercross in my life, I remember Anaheim stadium, 1977, finally into the season talking on my mind, let me ride supercross. I want to ride supercross. I want to ride supercross. And I make it into the final and I look over and I line up and I'm like, holy crap, there's Bob Hanna. He's the, he's, he's already wrapped up to set his champ. He's the champion. There's Marty Smith. There's Tony DeStefano. There's Galen Mosier. There's you know, Tommy Croft. Right. There's, I, I'm lined up next to these guys and mm-hmm. I'm like, are you nuts? <laughs> like, like, I mean, I, you know, this isn't, you know, total, this isn't Kansas anymore. This is the big leagues. I qualified. I wanted to be a pro rider. And now I'm, I am now officially in the big leagues and I didn't go through a development class. I didn't go through this arena cross series. I just, you know, I had to Mm -hmm. go big time and Hey, it worked out. And on the flip side, then I kind of know, then I look back at it and I say I, I understand the need for a development uh, a development class yeah. and, and and I and I get it but I don't know I, I I look at it and I say okay I mean let me ask you a simple question if you threw a Jet Lawrence or you threw a, one of these guys on a 450 we did it with Chase Sexton guy stayed down there two or three races you know series four years in a row or whatever he jumps up to a factory Honda and he you know. There were mul- he should have won two or three times. Like I remember in Houston, yeah. the one time when he fell in the sand. I mean, he was gone. Yeah. It was like the guys in the 250 class, the top handful of elite guys, they have the speed, no question, to run in the 450 class. And I've never been a big fan of the teams and the amateur ranks that keep these guys back in the B class because the team, same manufacturer already has a good egg rider. Yeah. So they, yep. I, that's kind of – the first time I really became aware of how that all worked was back when Team Green had Krudowski and Matasevich. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like they kept Krudowski back while they had Matasevich until he got to go up to the big class and the big – into the factory pro level. And then they allowed Krudowski to move move up to the a class and then he spent another year in amateurs and then got to go right. you know and to me it's like both of those guys were ready and able to go to the pros and 
at your, when you're young like that, you learn so fast and you're learning something new almost every time you're on the track. And I just feel sometimes that when we keep these guys down in the amateur ranks or we keep them into the 250 class too long, I just feel sometimes that it's almost detrimental to their development and their mm-hmm. growth. But on the flip side, I also see, you know, some people are like, oh, well, there's not enough jobs in the 450 class. You know, are we, so is that what we're trying to do here? Are we trying to, make sure there's enough jobs for all the riders. I don't know. I, yeah, yeah. I, I just, I think it's to the point now. I don't like seeing the East and West coast cause it convolutes the talent, but then on the other side, it is hard for a pro rider to step up and ride 17 races and then do 12 outdoors and mm-hmm. all the training in between. So it wears your body out faster when you have to do such a, uh, you know, a long schedule of 29 plus yep. full blown championship level races. So I, I don't know. Again, that circles back to what I'm talking about where I feel like I can argue both points yeah. strongly, but I, 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 I do think the fact that we don't have like the, at least the 250 class, if you get a nagging injury, you do have a little bit of time to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, the 450 class last year, we only had, you know, most all years basically only having Easter off doesn't allow people time to recover. I think this next 2022, we have two weekends off counting Easter, I believe, but yeah. still that's not a lot of time to recover from an injury. So I don't know. I just, you hate to see towards the end of the season when you show up at the last round nowadays at Salt Lake City and there's like yep. half, half the starting lines, you know, full of privateers and the factory guys are all injured trying to get ready for the get ready for the nationals. So uh, I don't know. What's your thoughts? I mean, let me ask you. You're, well, you're an expert. I, I, th- I think to me, you know, like you said, Sexton was more than ready and all these guys, top guys are more than ready to compete against the best of the best. But on the other hand, you know, we do want to have a bit of a feeder class and we want more jobs and we want riders earning money and everything else. I, I would be perfectly willing to go with some sort of cap on the career points in that class. So like, hey, like, you know, guys like Jimmy Dakotas or guys like Martin Costello that, you know, are good riders, but they're not elite 450 guys, but they want to race and make a living, then you know what, you're going to, you know, the cap is 500 points or 600 points or whatever you want to make it. And so a guy like Martin Costello with a bunch of nine-point races, you know, 12th overall, um, 12th place in a main, it'll take him a long time to get those 700 points. But if you're an elite guy and you crush the series within three years, you'll have your 600 points and, you know, you'll be out of there. Um, So then, you know, you deserve to be kicked out because you're, you're not it. Like, you know, Jeremy Martin, hey, man. You you can't you can't be in this class anymore. You've had your chances, and, and you know you're 28 years old. And sorry, it hasn't come together for you. But you you need to go to 450s, and then hopefully with that kind of thing, the teams would you know a star team or or a Mitch Payton team would have both kinds of bikes, and there would be a ride for a guy on a 450 Supercross and a 250 outdoor race. Like we used to, you know, you would ride 250 Supercross and ride 125 outdoors, and Ernesto Fonseca yep. would ride 125 outdoors yep. and then a 250 yep. 
Supercross. And so we would have more crossover of the classes, right? Um, no, I, so. I completely agree. I mean, you look back at even the shootout, like at the last race, I mean, I think Sexton won it and Sexton showed immediately he was capable of being competitive in the 450 class. You had Dylan Ferrandis, I think, you know, he obviously, he, he, I think he was competitive in the 450 class. I don't yeah. know. You, have to, yeah. you might have to straighten <laughs> me out on that one. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. And, and, and you have Christian Craig. I mean, he jumped right into the yeah. 450 class and he's, you know, and, and guys like that, they spent, those guys spent a lot of time down in the 250 class and i don't think i mean Ferrandis not in particular but definitely you know with christian craig and stuff he shows that he's plenty capable of being a factory level 450 guy so yep. i i hate to see those guys spend too much time down there uh in the 250 yep. class especially when they're you know racing half the season and half the races and, and things so i i'm with you too i think a points cap and get them out and 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 again um you know even when you brought up jmart there uh, if you remember i think that one of the first times he uh he, you know, he just showed up and said, hey, let's ride Daytona and yeah. Honda. So again, yeah. factory hunting. Damn, he's, how long did he lead that main yeah, event yeah. for about yeah. more than halfway? Sure. And, uh, and I think he ended up second overall So in the, in a 450 Supercross at Daytona. So uh, he's obviously capable of riding a 450 motorcycle. And nowadays, the 250s and the 450s are not different they they sound the same they look the same for the average person in the crowd that's sitting there they sent you know, they lap times are within a hundred sometimes mm-hmm. even occasionally occasionally 250s are faster but it's it's to me um uh, yeah it's yep. The 250 and the 450 are basically the same motorcycle. I mean, I, I'd rather see a 150 two-stroke class or something. I, I don't know. Right. The 250s, it's gotten too expensive for the, to run the teams and the motors are rebuilt every time they're on the track mm-hmm. or, you know, or every time they run a race, I mean, a, a weekend or an event. So, I, I, man, right. I, it's, like I said, I could, just like I told you, I could argue both cases. Yeah, yeah no, I, I'm with you. I don't think there's any hard and fast uh, rule. Um, last question for you. We've got uh, whole shot devices uh, on the front forks. We've got even some lockdowns on the rears. We have grates in Supercross. We have start maps where the uh, RPM can only get so high. We have lights on the fender to tell the rider that he has reached the correct RPM of the ideal start range. Have we, have we taken the skill away from starts, and should we remove some of that stuff to bring back an old-fashioned start? Um, uh, one way, or, one thing or another. I mean, I was at Yamaha when they debuted the hook from the Rinaldi team, um, you know, in the fork guard, and it's just progressed from there. And now we have dudes start blocks for the shorter guys, and they're holding it to a certain point. The ignition is only going so high, and they're getting ideal conditions. And all of the skill of a start um, has been taken away a little bit. Should we do anything, Brock Lover, for the starts? You know, it. If you remember, I mean, I look back at the Formula One era and in and, and car racing, and they got to the point where you know the car the cars were being controlled by computers in Japan via satellites, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and and it got it got to the point you know they had fully active suspension and, and anti lock brakes and full you know traction control, and it got to where they were just literally almost taking the skill out of it, and then you never saw a front tire lock up going into a corner when a guy tried to deep brake yeah. and do things. And, and, and I do say that it's – so there is a little bit of the advantage of qualifying well to have a good gate pick because every one of the gates or most of the gates now, there's a lot more good gate picks because there's no bad ruts. There's no bad choices and things. It is no question taking some of the skill out. Um, the greats behind the gate now also when people launch – 
uh, every, it's a lot closer in the first 10, 15 feet at 20 feet out of the gate, or even halfway down the start, the handlebar to handlebar is a lot closer than it used mm-hmm. to be. <laughs> it yeah. used to, if you got a bad rut, I mean, you just, Hey, you're out of luck. You're picking 16th. <laughs> yeah, you got yeah. a cra- you got a crappy rut. And, and, and that guy immediately was going to be half a bike behind, you know, the first 20 yards out of the gate. That's all gone. So now you've got all the bikes coming down very, very close uh, proximity of each other going into the corner. So if, you know, is it more dangerous? I'd like to see the statistics. Are there more crashes now since the introduction of the, of the great, uh, plus in the last four yeah. or five years than there used to be? I, I, I'm questioning, I'm wondering because it wouldn't surprise me if there were. Nope. But, I agree. but I don't know. Boy, I don't know when. I, I did. I don't even know when all some of this stuff was introduced. To be honest with mm-hmm. you, like I, I, I questioned about like traction control stuff when I would hear people hit the throttle full throttle in the sweeping corner, and the bike would kind of like it wasn't fully revving out. It wasn't really putting the exhaust note that you'd expect, right. and it was like the bike was kind of being held at a level like you're talking about with the starting device. And I think they were flirting with that thing a lot earlier than the public knows. Right. right. And, and, um, but it's, that's a good question. I mean, we would need to, I I don't want to get you going on another hour here, Brock, but we would also need a sanctioning body with some teeth and some knowledge behind it to stop some sort of electronic, um, um, parts coming in like F1, right? Like we would need that. And we don't don't have that. And we don't have, no, we really don't. We don't. Unfortunately, the manufacturers, uh, do tend to steer, uh, the sanctioning body, which is not the right way mm-hmm. to be. You really do. I remember back when I was in racing a lot more, the AMA actually seemed to care a little bit like that the factories would get too big of a, a right, gap over right. the privateer riders. And being a factory rider, you're always like, well, improve your riding and you'll get asked to be a factory rider. But then there's the chicken and the egg thing too. You got to make it to where people who can come into the sport you know for our sport we do need to have b level fact you know b level mm-hmm. teams to help put on the show and you know also there's plenty of them that can have good results too so yeah. and we we saw that this last year with the if it weren't the Cody Shocks and the whoever else as we saw a lot of guys that weren't on full factory equipment doing well so yeah. but just, uh, yeah it's yeah. i i know i'm with you i do you hate to have all the writing skill <laughs> taken yeah. out of it have we reached that point where like F1 or even like NASCAR, we need someone to step in and be like, hey, we're not going to do this to keep a cost down and to give, you know, a fighting man's chance to riders who don't have this ability to have this equipment. Right. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. I just I wonder. But then we have nobody to enforce any of that either. So, yeah. Well, it's funny you say that is that the, now that FIM is no, no longer involved uh, at the uh, they're no longer involved with the Supercross championship. It, it's no longer a world yeah. level. Um I heard some people talking at the last round or second to last round at Paula Raceway there at the, uh, they were saying that they're, I think they're in the market um, for somebody to kind of step up into that role mm-hmm. of uh, at, at the pro level racing to be kind of a, yeah. I don't want to call it the czar of the pits, but it's yeah. there. Need, there needs to be sometimes there needs to be a little some some of that in 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 some some. I just want to see consistent enforcement of the rules. To be honest with you, I want it in black and white. And I've always at one point when Supermoto was kind of coming on, uh, I was a member of the AMA's 
there was about a five person uh, mm-hmm. group that were the rules committee and we would meet once a year at the AMA and talk about the new rules and things. And I, I was a big proponent. I like to golf. Um, the one thing I think that we could learn from, there's probably not too many more highly educated attorneys in Ivy league school and very bright minds that, <laughs> that aren't involved in the golf professional golfing world. Right. And they, they were always really good about having their rule book is pretty tight and, back then the rules officials carried an actual copy of the rule book in their pocket. Now they have it on an iPhone. But when somebody, it doesn't matter if it's Tiger Woods or the guy that's mm-hmm. the 150th place in the tournament, when he breaks an infraction of the rule, it's written in black and white what the fine is. And so I think we need to kind of do the same thing for when you're jumping under Red Cross or you're jumping under this kind of things. And it's like, you know, there just needs to be some sort of penalty that's in black and white. And if you do this, it is two spots on the track or it's a 10 second penalty or it's a whatever. And I'm not saying one one of those is right versus the other, but it just needs to be in black and white. It doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah, you have to have consistent enforcement of the rules. And I question if that's really I just don't think it was it's the most consistent enforcement of the rules. You got to take the emotion out of it and say, Hey, sometimes it works in your favor. Sometimes it doesn't. And and I don't see that happening all uh, as consistent as I would like. Right. Right. Uh, well said. Well, Hey man, thanks for doing this, Brock. Appreciate it. I, I, uh, I really like your opinion and, uh, yeah, some good, good topics and some great what if questions. Right. So. Um, you got it, Steve. Like I, like I mentioned, yeah, I mean, I could sit and chat with you all day long, man. You've, uh, you're one of these guys that doesn't. Uh, you, you catch almost everything at the tra- track. I sometimes have had, uh, you know, the pleasure of sitting in the announcing booth at the nationals with you, and, and, and you're always, uh, you're like a spotter, and you catch a little everything, even while you're. St- Typing away on your phone, sending out tweets. Yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, six-time uh, AMA motocross champion Brock Lover working for Dunlop Tires, uh, the Fly Racing RaceRex podcast. Thanks, Brock. You're welcome. Thanks, Steve. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show. Don't forget to check out some of our past shows, including motocross legends such as The Bad Boy, Rick Johnson. I looked down and my hand was junk. I mean, yeah. I was sitting over to the side. The tendons were jerking in weird places. And my biggest disappointment with Danny Storbeck is that he never said sorry. Danny and I were friends, and we've never talked since. Brian Lunas. Before the 500 event, Dave and I fly to Germany, go down to Stuttgart. There's this little shop out the back of the mall factory. We get our cylinders, take them back, and, you know, off we go. And, you know, we ran Nicosil Cylinders as a factory part for a handful of years before anybody ever saw it in production. Dave Arnold. And, and Magoo was all, you know how he did the big pancake thing? Right. And right. and he's got the thing, he's completely laying on the gas tank trying to miss his tree. I mean, he would have gone even harder, jumped farther if that tree hadn't been, you know, yeah. if, it, if it hadn't been there. The Hurricane, Bob Hanna. I love the guy. I don't dislike. I think he's the greatest competitor this sport ever had. Absolutely 100% in my mind. I firmly believe that statement I said about these modern-day guys in Switzerland or Holland or Belgium on 45 minutes on the same bike. You're not beating Roger. Are you crazy? They're not doing it. If they think they're so much better nowadays than they were in those days, they're fools. They're different bikes, different times. The Beast from the East, Damon Bradshaw. It got to the point where I didn't want to leave home, and once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to take their money. The working class hero, Doug Henry. 
it was definitely an emotional moment for me, just thinking to myself, that's it, you know, and it's, it's amazing the stuff that goes through your head in a short amount of time of the things that, you know, that I was going to miss. The Daughter, Ron Machine. Until you really open your ears and you want to listen to what they're saying, like beating a dead horse, you know, and I know from personal experience, did anybody ever sit me down? Of course they did, everybody did. Pro Circuits, Mitch Payton. There's two ways to make the money. One is you can sign for money, or two, you can earn the money. I'm a high believer in earning the money. I think they ride better when they earn the money. Seven time, Jeremy McGrath. I was so mad, like so disappointed and so frustrated that I pulled pick and I left. Every point counts. I could kick myself to this day for not just riding around in tents. It's been no problem. My, my ego got in the way, you know? The O Show, Johnny Omar. Stuff that you could, you'd sit there if you didn't even want to ride it, you just wanted to just look at it all day. I mean, I got a chance to test all that. I like that era I was in. I really do. Search Pulp MX in the iTunes Store to enjoy these and over 800 great motocross podcasts. Hey.